Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Dinner at Fiola. This is episode two of our first story time, which is about the very political and very messy origin story of the International Space Station. The main purpose of the space station, although there's other science going on, is to learn how humans can live and work with ever-increasing safety and ever-increasing efficiency to open the space frontier. Last week, we were introduced to Dan Golden, who had just taken on the very controversial position of administrator of NASA. When I went in to speak to Senator Fritz Hollings, who was the chairman of the confirmation, the authorization committee for NASA, he said, Mr. Golden, why do you want this job? Now, if you might remember, the look on NASA at the time was not very good. Everybody thought they had become a bureaucratic, self-interested, stereotypical government agency that just had not delivered on programs for years. The, the bottom line is that we, we cannot afford a program that, that appears to be a, a series of failures going into the 21st century. And at the center of a lot of this criticism was the space station, which was actually called Space Station Freedom at the time. It was supposed to be up in orbit in space by 1992, but it seems that by the time 1992 rolled around, a lot of the hardware for the space station, even though NASA had spent its $8 billion budget, was not even built or functional. Largest cost growth in the program may occur during hardware development, which has not yet begun. And so as you can imagine, this was quite the puzzle for the people in the public, as well as for the people in Congress, and definitely people in the White House. And now here's Dan Golden, who's just come onto the scene and has promised that he would fix a lot of these issues, he would transform NASA, and he would finally get momentum on getting space station freedom up and launched into where it belongs, which is space. During my confirmation process, I talked to the leadership of the House and the Senate, Republican and Democrat. I didn't know where the space station would go, but I told them I was going to try and fix it and make it work. I was going to work with the NASA team. But we were also introduced to the old NASA institution. These people have been at NASA for a very long time, and they've become very, very comfortable with the status quo and with the way things have been at NASA. They really do not want Dan to come in and start changing everything they've been the face of for the past 10 or 20 years. A woman who was one of the was the administrative assistant to someone who ran the space science uh, uh, activity at NASA says out loud, you can't do that. And there was applause. Now, Dan, as you might have picked up, he's not exactly a spineless type of guy. I'm not going to be vindictive. I will try and do the best I can, but I'm not going to put up with a bunch of crap. So on this show, when we go out and we interview people, we like to do a few segments that are just fun and very light because obviously... A lot of the people that we interview are very serious people in the grand scheme of things. So we thought it would be appropriate if we brought a whole bunch of alcohol and played a whole bunch of drinking games, as well as a segment called Make Your Own Hot Sauce. Because what we've learned is that hot sauce can really show what somebody's personality is really like. So we had Dan make his own hot sauce with ingredients ranging from 50 Scoville to about a million Scoville, and I'm just gonna let you listen to what his reaction was to his own hot sauce. It'd be all in, and where's this stupid stuff? Let's try it. Holy shit, okay. Um, we, we're not gonna have an interview this way. Whoa! <laughs> yeah! 
Yeah, are you? Okay, I can see your sweat from three, three my meters away. My sinuses are burning. Now it's, it's up my nostrils. I am telling you, this hot stuff, please everybody listen, do not play <laughs> with one million Scoville. It is unbelievable. Now the reason why this could be telling for what you're about to hear in this episode is because two scientists from Penn State University found an association between the consumption of chilies and one's perception of strength and machismo. So if you're more inclined to try spice, then you have some bigger sense of strength and masculine pride. I like to go to the edge. And even though this is a very serious topic for me, obviously this is pretty much a joke and it's just a fun thing to do, but perhaps this exercise reveals a lot more about the Down Golden that the folks of the old NASA institution will have to face going forward. Because Dan Golden is not no weak On April 1st, 1992, Dan comes on to his new job as a new administrator of NASA. And immediately on his first day, we already see that the folks who have been there for a while, the old NASA institution, they are not too shy to hold back. They are very clear that they're not going to make it easy for Dan to just come in and change whatever quote unquote bureaucratic way Dan and the public may seem to think that they're operating in. One Washington Post article very eloquently describes Dan at this time as getting into the ring to wrestle the NASA bureaucracy to the ground. It's very poetic. Now the media, they're trying to make an assessment for the public on how Dan's gonna fare in this fight, but because most of Dan's past work is highly classified, they actually don't know that much about his abilities in this kind of public political arena. It's really funny because most of the things that I did uh, while at TRW was done in very discreet, secret activities. And my wife and daughters, I would bring people home to dinner at our house while I was at TRW. And sometimes I couldn't introduce people by their actual names. So the most the media can actually verify and share about Dan is... Dan Golden worked on highly secret activities <laughs> at TRW. You see, to the general media, all they can really tell about Dan is that he spent his entire career in the dark. And now, for the first time, he's stepping into the light as he's stepping into the ring. I mean, that's like if you've never seen a boxer box and all of a sudden he or she shows up in Vegas. You're going to be a little bit confused, and also you're going to have a little bit of doubt as to what this person can really do. And so their narrative for Dan is that he's been plucked out of obscurity, he may not have the political skills to run NASA, and he's an outsider to the space policy world. But from Dan's perspective, he may be the new guy at NASA, but... Oh, I wasn't an outsider. I knew exactly what I was doing. They pay taxes. They could say whatever <laughs> they want. Now, the way Dan comes through to NASA on his first day in 1992 definitely shows that he feels he knows what he was doing. However, it doesn't exactly disprove the media in their portrayal of him as an outsider to the NASA institution. I decided to send a signal to NASA. I was not going to come with my own team. I walked into NASA headquarters by myself. I didn't bring one person with me. 
Honestly, I thought Dan was exaggerating a little. I thought he would at least bring one right hand or somebody from TRW, where he was an executive just a few weeks prior. But it turns out he's not exaggerating at all when he says he comes to NASA all by himself. In an oral history with Josie Soper, who was one of Dan's assistants at NASA at the time, Josie remembers Dan as having zero allies when he first comes in. And with no trusted allies to lean on, Dan quickly finds out how this game with the people of the old NASA institution is going to go. There were people who worked directly for me who spent their day undermining me. I had a, 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 a meeting on a Saturday, I remember. They didn't like that. <laughs> they didn't like that at all. I held a staff meeting on Saturday because I was too busy. And I read about what went on in the staff meeting in the Washington newspapers on Monday. Now, what's interesting to me is not just Dan's relationship with the people of the old NASA institution as he comes in, but the system the old NASA institution has with the media. They don't like something Dan does at NASA, they have the media on deck, and then the media is spinning out a story two days later. One of the things they obviously tell the media when asked what it's like to work with a new administrator is that Dan is a manic workaholic, which is a trait they do not like because they do not like the Saturday meeting and they are not used to the Saturday meeting that all of a sudden this new guy Dan wants to hold. But for Dan, this is not even the most egregious act of insubordination. Compared to what he's about to find out, this is kind of like what white people would call small potatoes. Because as he gets settled in more and more into his new job, I found they were sending faxes up to the U.S. Congress to staffers, powerful staffers, undermining what the President of the United States said. What would be an example? Well, the, the, the President had a budget that had a specific task that had to be accomplished, and they would send up, it was faxes, it's a long time ago, but they, and I, I saw them, they send faxes up there telling the staffer it's okay, even though the president has taken this position, this is the right way to go. That's treasonable. You see, what Dan is witnessing firsthand is kind of the problem that Vice President Quayle and his right-hand in space policy, Mark Albrecht, experienced with the former NASA administrator, Dick Truly. In their situation, the White House, as represented by the vice president, they would set forth one direction, while NASA, represented by Dick Truly, they would take another. And then at that point, the direction of NASA would basically be at an impasse. And now, Dan not just witnesses this insubordination with the President of the United States, he's also getting a look into the other party in the mix, which is certain members of Congress. And what Dan's really uncovering is the well-oiled political machine of the old NASA institution. The old guard leadership of the old NASA institution, they're in bed with key folks in Congress, and together, they're pushing a different direction for the space agency than what's been established by the president of the United States. And that's kind of crazy. Now, this may be a well-oiled machine for the old guards of the old NASA institution, but clearly, the White House, as well as even from afar, you can tell it's a very chaotic and dysfunctional situation we have here in Washington. And at the center of a lot of this madness is NASA's most controversial program, Space Station Freedom.
No more than four weeks after Dan first starts on the job, Tim Romer, who's a member of the House, introduces an amendment to kill space station freedom from NASA's budget. Now, Tim Romer and many in Congress, they hate the space station and they want it killed because NASA was already supposed to have it up in orbit by now, but it's nowhere to be found. And apparently to get it into space and to build it starting from this point, NASA is asking for $30 billion more in extra funding. And so the way Tim Romer and his people in Congress are feeling about the situation is hell no, and this is not going to happen. And so ultimately, if the House votes in favor of this Tim Romer amendment, and if nobody in Congress or the president tries to resurrect the space station, then space station freedom would effectively be dead and Congress would redirect its budget of billions elsewhere. The night before the vote for this Romer amendment, Dan gives a speech to a group called the American Institute for Aeronautics and Astronautics. And of course, many Congress people attend Dan's speech because they want to see what this new guy Dan Golden plans to do with NASA. And when Dan gives his speech, it's pretty clear that he really hasn't had a chance to do a deep dive on the space station just yet because he says he's there as a new guy and he understands that everybody is also there to see what this new guy is going to do with NASA. And so his first job as administrator is to just take some time and simply listen to what everybody has to say. Now, he knows that there's a vote tomorrow for killing or continuing space station freedom, and he hopes everybody chooses to vote to continue the space station simply because of its vision. And he tells everybody that the vision of space station freedom is to learn about how our human body can live and work in space long term. Are there limitations? What's the best way to minimize all the resources that people have? How do we keep them healthy? And is there some limitation to how long people could spend in zero gravity and be able to come back to Earth? And of course, just like the Apollo missions, this kind of research can produce many, many spin-off technologies for people here on Earth. And so this is Dan Spiel about the space station. Please vote for space station freedom tomorrow. But he doesn't really get into the details or the status of where the space station really is. The next day, the House convenes and Tim Romer, who is sponsoring this Romer amendment, kicks off the debate. Now, Tim Romer at the time, he's a young House freshman from Indiana. And I do have to say, he's a very handsome guy. He looks like the type of guy that if I went to his Midwestern high school, I would vie for his varsity pin. And he's very logical and eloquent and verbally precise. Mr. Chairman, three reasons for offering this amendment. Good sense, good science, and good government. Good sense. When this space station was first devised back in 1984, it was supposed to cost the American taxpayer about $11 billion. Now, space station freedom, the original cost was actually $8 billion, not 11, unless he's counting inflation or something like that. Now, Mr. Chairman, we're looking at between 30 and 40 billion dollars to build this and the general accounting office has said that we're looking at maybe 118 billion dollars to maintain it over its 30-year life cycle but the point is that the space station 
Regardless of whether it was supposed to cost $8 or $11 billion back in the day, it's now looking like it's going to cost tens of billion dollars more just to build it. And then thereafter, it'll cost $100 billion more to operate it and to keep it running. This is not a good expenditure at this time with a $400 billion deficit for us to be spending money on. Listen, we are in a large budget deficit right now, and we are borrowing money to cover this deficit. This is not free money. We are paying interest on this national debt. And this is not the time for us to be doling out more money for what seems to be a 30, 40, 100 billion dollar space program that hasn't delivered on anything yet. The people in my town meetings, Mr. Chairman, are saying, when are you in Congress going to make some tough decisions? When are people in the 3rd District of Indiana and in California and Tennessee and Florida and New Jersey going to make some tough decisions on a budget deficit, on problems that we have here on Earth and not just up in space? Now, we are not just not rolling around in cash, but we haven't even addressed health care, homelessness and poverty sufficiently with our current national budget. These are real problems experienced by real people, and these are the people who voted for you on Earth. And you're going to take that money and spend it on a space station that just doesn't even exist? We have a saying in Indiana that goes something like this. When you find yourself in a hole, the first rule is quit digging. Don't continue to throw good money after bad. We are behind, and we should quit while we're behind. I do not want to be in this Congress in the year 2000 after we've spent $15 billion on this and look at the next 20 years where we'd probably spend another $100 billion. Not this space station, Mr. Chairman. Now, what really tripped me up in understanding the story is that many historical accounts overemphasize Tim Romer's side of the argument. They present space station freedom as something Congress collectively hates and tries to kill during this time, but I think that way oversimplifies the situation. The situation has to be more nuanced than that because there must be a reason NASA has gotten away for eight years with not producing anything on space station freedom. And this is where the supporters of the space station in Congress come into the picture. Now, I do think that the supporters of the space station they earnestly believe that they're in the same position as Ferdinand and Isabella, and they do believe that the space station is similar to Christopher Columbus's journey. Now, I also do think that these people who are supporting the space station earnestly believe in its symbolism for the American youth. The space station will serve as a magnet to attract and inspire America's youth to become tomorrow scientists and engineers and I also do think that they really do believe that the space station has real scientific and technical merits. Space station freedom will explore new biologies, new medicines, and new materials. And also, we brought in some international partners. We can't just leave them in the lurch. If we unilaterally pull the rug out from underneath the space station, their billions of dollars of investment based upon their faith that America would keep its word will go down the drain. And believe me, it will be a long, long time 
before any international financial participation will come into any science project as a result of the House of Representatives today unilaterally defunding the space station. But as you continue to watch this debate, you start to hear and see some recurring themes from the members in the House who are fighting to continue the space station program as is. First, what you see is that it's a whole bunch of old white people defending the space station, but also what you hear... The space station program means 75,000 high-tech jobs. There are over 30,000 people working directly on the program and over 75,000 related jobs. We have many jobs in my state and in most of your states that are attributable to the space station. 75,000 across the country. And this is at a time when, when jobs are really at a premium. These are hard times to explain to an American man or woman that you've arbitrarily ended their job and income and put in jeopardy the future prosperity of their children and their country. What you hear is all about jobs, jobs, jobs. A year ago, Dick Truly and his NASA employees had circulated pamphlets to all of the members of Congress. Each pamphlet was titled Business is Getting Bucks with a dollar sign at the end for the S. And underneath that title that says business is getting buck dollar sign was a map of the U.S. and a number on each state indicating the number of contracts the space station supports in that state. So what they were trying to show Congress was that the space station program supported more than 2,000 businesses in 39 states. Now Mark Albrecht, Vice President Coyle's right hand in space policy at the time, he illustrates what we're seeing here best in his book. He writes, our institutions became bloated, wasteful, and bureaucratic. Elected representatives became fiscal stewards of jobs in their states and districts, making efficient and coherent allocation of resources nearly impossible. And then he continues, it is often said that the Pentagon is an iron triangle of industry, the Congress, and the military services. In fact, the civil space program is a steel quadrangle of industry, Congress, the NASA bureaucracy, and academic scientists. So what we're seeing here is that even though the old NASA institution has not delivered on space station freedom at all, their people in the Congress are still fighting for the funding for the space station because it gives jobs to the NASA employees, the aerospace contractors, and the academic scientists who live in their districts. Now, of course, this is not that big of a surprise because this is just how everybody expects government to work anyway. But it's kind of weird to think that this is the situation with the space station that's just supposed to be this cool and nerdy and inspirational thing to everybody today. So I would say that the feeling or the status of space station freedom in Washington it's similar to the status of NASA at the time, and it's similar to the relationship Dick truly had with the White House before he left. It's basically at an impasse. The president clearly strongly supports the space station, but NASA has not delivered on it, and they have not streamlined it as asked by the White House to make it go forward. And then when members of Congress want to kill it because it's too expensive or it's taking too long to build, there's this other faction of Congress that tries to save it because it produces jobs in their districts. Now, to go back to what I said about historical records saying that this was a time when members in Congress hated the space station, yes, that is still true. 
the opposition to the space station. They do hate it, and they are very pissed by it. The space station remains a jobs program for the aerospace industry, and that is about the sum total of its contribution to America's space program. If freedom is ever lofted into orbit, its utility to the program will be over. And it's not just in the House. There's even more passionate anger in the Senate. The Tim Romer of the Senate is Senator Dale Bumpers from Arkansas. NASA has caught on to what the Pentagon does. Put a little dab in every state. Now, if the name Dale Bumpers rings a bell to you, it's probably because you remember him after he's retired and has come back as one of Clinton's defense attorneys in 1999. But while he's in the Senate in 1992, oh my goodness. This man will give you the most passionate 30-minute monologue with full presentation and graphs on why space station freedom should be canceled. So, as you can see, the situation of the space station—it's actually pretty complicated, and it really, truly is at an impasse. No one in Washington is really seeing the space station move forward, but when authorities like the White House try to get NASA to manage it differently, The old NASA institution doesn't really budge, and then when folks like Tim Romer try to solve the issue by killing it outright in Congress, there's NASA's people in Congress fighting to save it and trusting whatever NASA tells them about what the progress on the space station is. So at this point in April 1992, the space station just feels very, very stuck. Now keep in mind that this is just Dan's fourth week on the job, so for the most part, people are willing to give Dan a chance and to see where he's politically gonna lie on this program and how or if he's gonna break this very expensive impasse. Administrator Golden deserves an opportunity to develop his own plan to coordinate freedom with his other priorities. So on April 29, 1992, the House votes to give Dan a chance, and they vote to continue the space station. Now Dan's directive from President George H. W. Bush is not only just to get Congress to support for the space station, although that is something that he needs to fund it. His directive from President George H. W. Bush is to get past this very weird deadlock where Congress continues to fund it. But no progress is made, and to turn it into a functional project that actually gets into space. Now, coming in from the outside and still fresh on the job, Dan's understanding of the real status of the space station—it's all based on outside information at this point. He's read about it in the media. He's read NASA's testimonies in Congress about it, and he's of course heard rumors and opinions about the space station from people in Washington. So he knows that there are issues with the space station, but the House, who all seem like fine people, they just voted to keep it going. So I thought it was okay. Well, it was a bit controversial, but I knew that they won a big vote in '92. So at this point, Dan's just thinking, like, how bad could the space station actually be? But then he starts to actually dig into the space station directly with the people at NASA who are managing it. I was. Deeply shocked and surprised to see that it really was not in a state that was apparent in the testimony in '92. Now, testimony in 1992 is NASA's testimony to the Senate one month ago before Dan comes onto the job. 
The hearing was literally called Space Station Freedom and Space Launch Issues. And what the NASA reps at the hearing essentially testified was the following. The space station will launch its first element into space in November 1995, which is three years from this point, and they've been busy developing and testing much of its prototype hardware and systems, and that testing has been proceeding very well. So this testimony presents the space station as moving along and everything is going in the right direction. But for Dan, when he's checking out the space station for himself and comparing it to the testimony that he reads... It just didn't correlate. And the deeper I dug, the bigger the problem that occurred. Here's the, one of the first questions I asked. I said, the specification for the space station says you're supposed to have a jitter of one millionth of a g-force. I'm looking at the spec. Tell me what the jitter is on the space station. It was 10,000 times that. What are you going to do about it? We didn't have an airlock. An airlock allows uh, the shuttle to dock to the space station and get the pressure equalized so astronauts could go in and out. And an airlock would have cost billions of dollars. We didn't have anything in the budget for a crew rescue vehicle. What if something went wrong on the space station and the shuttle were not there? That's a number of billions of dollars. We had no alternate launch vehicle to get to the space station in the event the shuttle had a functional problem and couldn't operate for a year or two. We didn't have a redundant mission control centers. And then on top of that, the state of the hardware was nowhere near what they believed they had. And finally, some things plain and simple didn't work. So once Dan assesses the overall existing space station design, as well as the technology that's been built over the last eight years, he realizes what the actual state of the space station really is. The space station spent all its money and it had no hardware to show for it. It was supposed to be on orbit for God's sakes and the hardware was in bushel baskets. The completion status was nowhere near what they thought it was. Now, I don't think anyone was being malicious or lying, I just think they were too close to the program and they didn't have a sense that it was way out of line in cost, way out of line in schedule, that there were serious technical problems that hadn't yet been addressed. Now, at a place filled with some of the world's top scientists and engineers, technical issues this deep that haven't been resolved for eight years that has to stem from some deeper, fundamental issue in how the program is managed. So Dan moves on from assessing what works, what doesn't work, what's missing, to understanding who's responsible for all of this, what works, what doesn't work, what's missing. And what he learns is that the answer is that essentially nobody's responsible. The space station program had four prime contractors. So a prime contractor wins the lead work on government projects, and they're essentially the team captain on that project. They manage any of the subcontractors who work for a piece of the pie, and in a normal government contractor relationship, the single prime is ultimately responsible for making sure everybody else's output is completed as defined in the prime contract. There was a prime contract that went with NASA Houston, a prime contract that went with NASA uh, Huntsville in Huntsville, Alabama, NASA Marshall, a prime contract that went with NASA Lewis in Cleveland, Ohio. So what's going on here is that at this point in time, 
There are 11 different NASA centers spread across America. Each of these centers are essentially R&D facilities that win work by winning contracts from NASA HQ. And of those 11 centers, NASA Houston, NASA Marshall, and NASA Cleveland have all been awarded that number one prime contractor spot to build the space station. And they even formed a new center in Virginia to appeal to the Virginia delegation. They generated a whole NASA center to do system engineering. By system engineering, Dan's referring to program management for the space station at another NASA center in Reston, Virginia, that's also been awarded the prime contractor position. And when you read a Washington Post article from 1987 when this Reston facility was created, NASA had created it specifically to be the project headquarters that would manage the design and the construction of the space station on a day-to-day -day basis. And just to give you a sense of how big this day-to-day -day operation would be, NASA would award a 10-year, $1 billion contract to subcontractors who provide space station program support. So Dan is just looking at this prime contractor that's been created out of pure bureaucracy. And let me just reiterate what his reaction was. They generated a whole NASA center to do system engineering. So essentially, what Dan has uncovered is that the space station development is divided into three different teams, each with its own team captain who really don't have to talk to each other, and they all report to another special team captain that really doesn't have any real function in the mix. We had four emperors. <laughs> each emperor will run his own show. No one was in charge. So I said, it's the blind leading the blind. You, you can't believe it. And I found a video that the program manager of NASA Space Station, Space Station Freedom, he said, you would think that we would organize for efficiency, we organize for political expediency. So Dan sees this weird fiefdom management structure of the overall space station, and it's obviously pretty wacky. But each of these emperors also have their own NASA employees, and they have their own subcontractors from the aerospace industry. So maybe it's a NASA headquarter problem, and each of these emperors at least has a reasonable operation of their own. I went to NASA Houston, which I think had the biggest contract, and uh, early on, I said to the program manager, the program manager, but he only ran a piece of it. I said, uh, what was the award fee you gave to your contractor for the last period of performance? These were cost pl plus contracts, which means cost plus a fee, an award fee. So based upon the volume of work you did, in terms of dollars, you got a fee, you got an award fee between zero and 100%. So I said, your contract has done a very lousy job. What award fee did you give him? So he said, oh, Mr. Golden, you can't make this up. I marked him down from 96% to 93%. I was incredulous. What nonsense. This is the kind of nonsense that went on. Wait, so to understand, it's, um, let's say it's a 50 billion project. No, let, let, I'll, I'll give a number that might be closer to reality. You could earn up to, let's say, 15% fee. And let's say in that period of time, uh, $100 million got done, okay? 
And so with $100 million, maximum fee is 15%. That's $15 million. Okay. So if they get 100% award fee, they get $15 million in profit. If you mark it down to 96%, it's still close to 15 when they should have gotten a damn zero. Now, what Dan is witnessing is kind of a trickle-down relationship into industry. We already saw that even though NASA has not delivered on the space station, they have key people in Congress who will keep giving them money. But now in this situation, NASA's subcontractor has not delivered on their part of the space station, yet this NASA manager keeps awarding this subcontractor. This is the beautiful, well-oiled machine of the old NASA institution, and life has been good for everybody. But what these people need to understand is that this is all about to stop because Dan has come in as the new administrator of NASA. So Dan tells his particular space station manager that he should give his subcontractor a zero award fee. And guess what happened? They refused to give a zero. Even though Dan, the new boss, gives the station manager directions, the station manager outright tells him no, and he sticks to his loyalty to his aerospace contractor. And this is where we end the episode this week. Next week on Dinner at Fiola... The average American pays $10,000 to the U.S. government. That's big money. And when you're spending billion dollars and you don't have an appreciation for the hardworking Americans and you spend money like it's going out of style and then you get angry when someone calls your baby ugly, I don't care how you feel. How's that? You can go to my wiki page. I was controversial. I don't care. In this episode, political clips are provided by C-SPAN, story is edited by M. Fei Shin, and Dan Golden is co-interviewed by Rachita Jane. <laughs>